Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, share how their graduate school experience at GSPM helped them get an inside track to professional success, and how it can help leaders like you do the same. New episodes drop every other Monday, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or review. Just a few seconds of your time can help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Joe Franco, an alumnus of the political management program at GSPM and an accomplished, award-winning advocacy executive who has built and led grassroots operations at several prominent associations, including the American Cancer Society, the Alzheimer's Association, the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and the American Diabetes Association. Today, he's the Vice President of Advocacy at Leading Age, which represents more than 5,000 nonprofit aging services providers and other mission-minded organizations that touch millions of lives every day, where he's responsible for building the organization's grassroots capacity and setting and implementing strategies that maximize its ability to affect legislative change. That sounds like a very important job on behalf of a very important cause, so we're very grateful uh, to him for taking just a few minutes out of his busy schedule to chat with us today. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Uh, we always start at the same uh, place on this podcast, as our listeners know, which is at the beginning. Uh, where does the story Where does the story of Joe Franco begin? Where were you born? What was your family like? What were you like as a kid? How did this all How did this all start? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, got into politics in a very unusual way, but I think it's a great way to show anyone that politics and advocacy and government affairs is open to anybody. You don't need to have uh, you know, a blue blood background. You don't need to have a, a well-connected family in order to make a difference. Um, I actually grew up in Colorado, just in a town called Lakewood, which is a big suburb outside of Denver, on a horse ranch. So um, my mother uh, wanted me to be a cowboy, um, and uh, I definitely went a different route and got into p- politics um, and haven't looked back. I did not know that there were horse ranches in Lakewood. I grew up in Colorado uh, as well in Highlands Ranch, so not not super far away. Uh, I spent 10 years there, but I did not know there were horse ranches in Lakewood. So there's, uh, you know, you learn something new every day. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, and that was where my, you know, my venture into politics started was, unfortunately, after the tragedy at Columbine High School. I was in high school when Columbine happened, uh, was just a few miles away at a different high school, and was really shook to the core, you know, about how something terrible like that could happen in the, the community. And I worked with a lot of other fellow students to talk about how we could reduce bullying, how we could bring the community together and avoid something like that happening again. And it was through that efforts that I was uh, appointed to uh, the Cultural Diversity Commission 
uh, at the city level. And then through that work, there was a gentleman who was running for mayor. He was a city councilman at the time. And um, still to this day, still a little uh, uh, blown away that he decided to entrust a 16-year-old in high school to be his campaign manager uh, for a three-way mayoral race. Um, and I think the other thing that made it really interesting uh, was the fact that he is a Republican and I'm a Democrat. So that mm. made also for an interesting story of not only did he pick a 16-year-old to run his political campaign uh, for office, but he also picked a Democrat uh to do that as well. And we had a very hard fought race in 1999 and uh, we won. And that was an amazing experience to be, you know, a young person entrusted with such a public, you know, important job, but also just the fact that someone, you know, in the political system saw something in me when it wasn't like I had any specific training. I was learning community organizing on the ground. I was learning how to connect with people and how to make a difference but they saw that passion, they saw that talent in me, and they let me run with that. And I'm forever grateful to that. And that's another reason why I always, when I talk with my students at the GSPM and others, I say, it's so important to look beyond political party, because it is very possible to work closely with people with different political views. And matter of fact, they can be the person that could give you the next step in your career, or can help you out with other things. So I think it's really important that we continue to look at, you know, how we can work together instead of how we can divide ourselves. And also that you don't need a specific background or, you know, things like age or sex or, uh, you know, uh, ethnic background doesn't matter. Anybody can make a difference if you want to use your voice and, and make a difference. Yeah, I'm just I'm totally struck by this idea of you being 16, uh, being the campaign manager for a mayoral race. I try to think back to when I was 16, I barely knew which way was up, let alone like anything about politics at any level. Um, and I'm sure, and you, you, you kind of go on to continue to be active in kind of local and state politics. I know you uh, managed some state house, at least one state house race, maybe multiple. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer that kind of that state and local level uh, are kind of that's the backbone of american politics and you know i, I have a background in in, in campaigns uh, as well and from a campaign perspective that's just when you get down to those levels that's just pure politics you've got a very small relatively small number of voters um you can actually you know go out and and meet these people and and talk to these people and those races are very responsive usually to to local issues which is a, a departure from our current politics which are everything seems very very nationalized uh, especially once you get up to you know bigger offices um what was that experience like for you a just because you were so young right and as you mentioned you 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 didn't necessarily know what you were doing yet. Um, but what were you able to take from that that's been applicable in the path that, that you've walked since? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, Tip O'Neill had the very famous saying of all politics is local. And that's what I really learned was that at the end of the day, it really didn't matter at the local level about the party or about how much money you raised or how many yard signs you had out. It was about what were you doing for your constituents? Were you actively working on the issues? You know, if that neighborhood had been asking for a speed bump to stop the traffic that was, you know, uh, making dangerous for kids to walk the streets, and that hadn't been put in yet, could you go in and put that in and make a difference in those people's lives? And, you know, I, I was very fortunate that after I won the mayoral race at 16, much to my parents' chagrin, I had a gentleman who was running for the state house of representatives who asked me, he said, 
Uh, he was there at election night, and I always remember it. It was a room full of Republicans, and I was one of the few Democrats in the room, of course. And this gentleman walked up to me, and he said, well, I hear you're a Democrat. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm running for House District 23, and I know that tomorrow they're, they're going to be calling you off the hook to run campaigns. So I want you to run my campaign for the House of Representatives in the State House. And I said, I remember looking at my parents, and they, like, I think were just shocked and wanted to probably, you know, uh, scream at him, but the, you know, I, so I, I I read the cue and I said, "Well, let me talk to my parents." Um, but then, you know, I was able to work it out with my parents that I could still manage school in this, and I ended up running his campaign um, the next year. And you know, talking about how important local pieces were and how, like, you're, you 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 totally hit the nail on the head with it being so localized. We were an open seat and we won the race with less than 250 votes. It was wow. you know less than less than a fraction of a percent that we won by um and that was a huge upset that year um and people were really surprised and to be honest i think my age kind of helped me out in that point because i think when um our opponents heard that there was the 17 year old running the political campaign they honestly didn't take it as seriously and we mm-hmm. just worked we just worked hard right and we we, we went door to door we talked about the issues and we took a seat that was rel- that had never really had a Democrat win it ever, and we had flipped it. And that was a big deal. And that kind of really led for some notoriety for me. I actually was uh, quite honored that uh, Teen People magazine, which I don't think is around anymore, but People is, but not Teen People, named me one of 20 teens who will change the world because uh, I had kind of done a little bit of a political upset in winning that race. And sure. it just kind of, once again, I used that, you know, opportunity to just highlight that if you work hard, you can get things done. It doesn't matter what your background is. Um, you can make things work if you're willing to do the work, you're willing to talk with people, and you're willing to build community. Huh. Teen people. I, I did not know that teen people was was clued in uh, to, to the goings-on in state legislative races in the uh, late 90s. I'm glad that they were. i I remember them for their boy band content uh, in that era, exactly. but uh, I'm glad that I'm glad there was some Joe Franco content in there too. Um, so you you have this burgeoning uh, political career in Colorado. Obviously, you wind up in D.C. How do you how do you go from from there to here? How do how do you kind of make the make the jump to to D.C.? What what happens in those intervening years? Yeah, that's, I think, the big piece too, right? And we get this question all the time at the GSPM of, you know, I want to come to the GSPM and I'm looking to break into politics. What do I do? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's always the proverbial thing of you just have to get your foot in the door. Um, The gentleman that I helped get elected to the State House of Representatives uh, in 2000, um, as he likes to joke with people that I was the guy who got him elected and then I was the guy that got him unelected. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we unfortunately lost his re-election race in 2002. They um, redistricted his district and made it very mm. unfriendly. Um, so he then became the head of government affairs for the American Cancer Society in Colorado. So he was their head mm. lobbyist in Colorado. And he knew that I wanted to get out to D.C. and work there. So he you know, reached back out to me after I'd gotten my undergraduate degree from the University of Colorado of Boulder and said, you know, would you like to go and I, you know, they're starting up a government affairs office in DC for the American Cancer Society. Would you like to go and work there? And I was like, absolutely. Like, that sounds great. Like, you know, I, who, who wouldn't want to advocate on behalf of the patients and, and families dealing with cancer? So that was kind of my first big, you know, political job in DC. And, uh, you know, what was really 
interesting about that, and I think people are more aware of it now, but I sure as heck didn't know back then that nonprofit organizations did advocacy. You know, when I thought back then of people doing political work, I would think of, you know, IBM or Caterpillar, you know, corporations spending money and, you know, having big time lobbyists. I wasn't thinking of organizations like the Cancer Society or, you know, the Humane Society, Diabetes Association having lobbyists and doing that work. So when I found out that I could really care and have a strong mission that I was really, you know, deeply ingrained with, but also get to do political work, I was sold. I was like, this is amazing. And I love doing healthcare work um, just because when I worked in the state legislature, I worked as a legislative aide for Representative Daniel. Um, so much of what we were working on at the time was prescription drug costs, healthcare access, you know, so in 2000. So, you know, healthcare reform had failed. Um, but people were still really hurting. So to me, it was just kind of like a calling where I was like, okay, I really want to get into advocacy for on behalf of patients and their families. And so it's around this time when you're in DC now, you're working at the American Cancer Society that you find your way to GSPM. Is that right? Somewhere around, uh, 2008. Yep, exactly. Yeah. You know, the, um, uh, I think as most people do, the recession had hit. And uh, so I was trying to figure out how could I strengthen, you know, my skill set and also learn more so I could, you know, make myself more marketable. So, you know, I had heard about the GSPM through uh, a, a fellow student that I had heard about before. Um, and what really impressed me back then, GSPM, their tagline was they were the West Point for politics. Huh. And I just love that that. You know, I mean, it's a little militaristic, but I was like, wow, that's what I wanted. I wanted a program that was hands-on, right? They were going right. to teach me how to be in the trenches winning campaigns. I didn't want to be somewhere writing a PhD thesis on, you know, the impacts of PAC, PAC funds in, you know, rural Indiana on a congressional race, right? Like that, right. I wanted to know, how do I do political polling? How do I organize people at the grassroots level? How do I lobby you know, congressional committees. So when I saw that I could get an, you know, a hands-on degree at the GSPM, it was, you know, uh, a no-brainer to do that. So, oh, plus the other thing too is that back then you could test out of the GRE. Um, mm. Now it's not a requirement. But back then you, you either had to take the GRE or you could test out. And I was able to test out. So that helped too. <laughs> I definitely uh, had to take the GRE. Uh, and that's not Sorry a... To hear that. Yeah, that's not a, a part of my life that I'll ever be able to get back. Um, what was your GS, GSPM experience like? Uh, kind of what did you enjoy the most? Did you have a favorite class or a favorite professor? Like what, walk us through kind of what that experience was like for you, uh, you know, when you were when you were there as a student. Yeah, you know, it's two things. Um, and one, I, I think one of the big overall things is I love that we've gotten better at online teaching and education. But I will mm -hmm. say there is nothing that compares to the in-person GSPM experience for two reasons. Yeah. One, I made lifelong friends who were my classmates. And I think that's mm -hmm. a big thing is that the GSPM in essence creates a club of classmates of people that are just as motivated as you and that want to make a difference. And more importantly, are also of different political perspectives because I have made friendships with the GSPM with honestly people that I never would have associated with outside of that because they are so probably politically diametrically opposed to me. 
But there's something about sitting together in class, working on projects together, that you develop a friendship. And and then you see those classmates go on and become a chief of staff to a U.S. senator or become the head of programs for a very prestigious university or, you know, or, or manage or even run for office themselves, right? So I think that's what's amazing in the GSPM is the networking. And then the classes and the professors are just phenomenal. I mean, I think if I had to pick my two favorite courses, um, it would definitely be um, uh, Dr. Rodney Whitlock. I took his healthcare policy class while we were he was he himself was in the middle of helping to frame the Affordable Care Act for Senator Grassley. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember him one time during class, his cell phone ringing and him saying, I need to take this. He goes into the hallway and then he comes back five minutes later and he said, sorry, that was Senator McCain. I had to explain the Medicaid carve out to him yet again because uh, he still doesn't understand it. And then he just went right back into teaching whatever thing he was teaching. And I was like, wow, like that's my professor. That's the guy who's, you know, when he's going to go home tonight after class, he's going to continue talking to Senator McCain as they're writing the bill. Mm-hmm. And then I also had a class with Doc Billet um, in the, who, who taught the, uh, the PAC management program. And that was a fantastic class too. Um, just learning about, you know, the money behind politics and then, you know, uh, you know, Doc Billet became a really great mentor and um, to me as well. So, you know, these were, you know, professors that I think, you know, are really beneficial. And of course, I really loved Evan Tracy, who's still a professor. Um, you know, once again, Evan Tracy and I are couldn't be on further political ends of the spectrum, but <laughs> he's so funny. He's so smart. And the way he teaches, you know, political advertising is just incredible. And he's someone that I still keep in touch with today. And we check in and we, you know, give each other a hard time, but we also kind of give each other, uh, give, give each other some good analysis of where we think things are heading politically. And you're working during the day at, at the American Cancer Society and going to school at night during this time. How was what you were learning in the evenings relevant to your, to your day job? And, and, and how are you kind of able to take those lessons and apply them immediately in, in your work? Exactly. I think that was one of the beautiful things, right? Um, I remember distinctly when we were, uh, when I was in class, I was taking a polling class uh, at the GSPM. And I remember they were talking about cross tabs and they were talking about significance and margins of error. And then I remember like a a few weeks later, we had a poll pollster come in to talk about, I forget what the issue was. It probably was the Affordable Care Act and its favorability. And, you know, I would have been embarrassed in that big room full of smart people as they were going through the polling, uh, as they were talking about all that. I wouldn't have asked that, those questions about, well, I don't know what that means. But because I had already had that class, I knew exactly what they were talking about. And I could like Mm -hmm. have a really intelligent conversation. So that was really cool. Um, and then, like I said, you know, uh, you know, I purposely took that health policy class with Dr. Whitlock, um, which was actually an alleged affairs course. Even though I was GSPM, I was able to take that elective. And that was just incredible because I was able to learn the nuts and bolts of healthcare policy from a Republican perspective, you know, which was mm-hmm. really invaluable because I mostly had been hearing it from the Democratic side. So, you know, once again, it's not only the content, but it's also hearing from different sides and opposing sides. So that way, when you, you know, I could go back to my office the next day and say, well, this is why, you know, Senator Grassley, this is why the Republicans are thinking this way on this issue. And this is how we can possibly change what we're thinking. Or, you know, do we do we agree with it? And we want to like partner with them. So yeah. I think those were the, the things that like, was just pure gold, right? Like, I mean, you right. pay tuition, 
But man, did that just pay dividends, and it's still to this day paying dividends for me. At this point in your career, you're, you're, you've been involved for many years in the process of kind of hiring and promoting people within the various organizations in which you've worked. Can you kind of briefly discuss the skills that you're looking for that kind of make one candidate more competitive than others? And how does something like GSPM, being somebody who you know has gone there as a student and now has come back as an adjunct professor... Uh, how does GSPM help students build those kind of skills, help them be, you know, as competitive as they could possibly be uh, for these jobs? Because, you know, that was, like you mentioned, one of the things that ultimately originally drew you to GSPM was trying to make yourself uh, more competitive and make yourself uh, put yourself in a, in, a, in a position to succeed, even in, you know, a tough job market like it was back in 2008. Um, what do you, how do you see that now, you know, kind of, kind of being on the other side? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the key things, right, is that in Washington, D.C., as a supervisor, as someone who's working in government affairs, you sadly don't have a lot of time to do on the ground training with a new hire. So having someone from the GSPM, I know that they don't need to know what a poll is, right? They know what the cross tabs are. They know what's, you know, significance is to a poll. They know what political advertising is. Uh, I know that they know what a, you know, a coordinated class member is in a, in a political action committee. You know, they know all of these things that I don't have to cover with them. And they, we can just instantly get to work. And then I also know that they then have a network that as they're thinking about how to do a campaign or, you know, if we're coming up with a strategy for how to pass a bill, they can say, hey, I can talk to my professor or, hey, I talked to someone at this, you know, one of my classmates is at, you know, the, this competing association. Let me reach out to them and maybe there's some common ground there. So I think that, you know, it's not only the education. I mean, that's immensely helpful to GSPM, but it's also those connections and the networking because you can you can connect the dots quicker and sooner because we're all here in D.C. and we're all working together. You go, you've gone on to obviously have several more kind of advocacy roles uh, at various organizations over the years, all the way up to today. Uh, and one of the things I was wondering about is, you know, many lobbyists or, or government affairs folks, uh, they get into the field, into that field after working on the Hill, um, and many of whom, you know, do so for, for a long time. And they really understand that institution and its unique ways of working from kind of the inside out. Uh, you have a different background obviously. Um, did you ever find that to, to be a challenge? Did, do you think that Hill experience makes it easier yeah. to be an effective lobbyist or, or advocate? Because you know, you've obviously done quite well without it, but I'm more wondering kind of what your guidance might be for others who are considering the field as a potential path for themselves. I love this question uh, because I will fully say it is a regret of mine that I haven't worked on the Hill, even if I had mm. just done like a six month stint as a legislative correspondent, right? Like knowing mm. those inner workings and just sitting in one of those cramped offices and giving a tour and then, you know, meeting a constituent. Um, I think that's golden. Plus, once again, it's another club, right? You, you, you make connections. There's people you met with you or an LC or an LA. And then, you know, 10 years later, you're both VPs of government affairs somewhere. And you're like, oh, I remember we worked on that bill together. So I always like to tell younger folks, if you can, and if you can afford it, try to go up to Capitol Hill, even just for a little bit to do that. Um, however, I, I like to think, as you pointed out, thank you graciously that, um, 
it is possible to, to have a very successful career in politics without being on the Hill. But I do think that it, it makes it a little bit harder. Um, you have to look at something like the GSPM to kind of backfill that networking and um, content area for you if you're not going to do the Hill. Um, so it is possible. I think, I think if you're able to, you know, the problem with working on the Hill, let's be honest, is the time and the money commitment. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, how many LCs do we know that are an LC, but also have two other jobs? You know, they're, they're walking right. dogs on Rover and they're also working at a bar or a Starbucks <laughs> to make ends meet. It's terrible that we don't pay. They're incredibly hardworking professionals. We just unfortunately don't pay them enough. So, you know, I mean, I think if you can afford to do it, it's great. But if not, I think you can equally get great education at like the GSPM and then also, you know, learn on the ground through an association or, you know, through a, through a starting role in government affairs and still be able to work your way up and be very, very successful. I mentioned you've worked for several different associations, each of which uh, have kind of been in the health, the health, healthcare space, starting the American Cancer Society, moving through Alzheimer's Association, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, American Diabetes Association, now to, to leading age. Um, you obviously have to really love the work that you're doing to stay in a particular field for as long as you have. You also probably have an expertise in that field now that you've developed and it's valuable. Um, but what is it about the work that you've been able to do at these different organizations that's been so appealing to you and, and kept you kind of coming back for more? Absolutely. I love that question. You know, in each of my roles at these organizations, a main facet of my job is teaching ordinary Americans that they have an incredible voice and incredible power in our elected uh, system. Um, you know, it's, it's training families who their son was just recently diagnosed with step with type one diabetes and that they can go and they can advocate for new laws to make sure their son is protected while they're at school. Uh, you know, at leading age, it's, it's going to our nursing home members who have been just battered by the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, saying, we are going to connect you with your U.S. Senator so you can advocate for, you know, more program funds, so you can advocate for lessening of regulations, so you can provide the best care, even during a once in a lifetime, you know, health emergency. And it's amazing to me, you know, I think my favorite part, honestly, is seeing an advocate who's never met with an elected official, they don't know what they're doing, they're scared to death, they go up to Capitol Hill, they have that in-person meeting, and they come back and they go, that was amazing. That was so empowering. I can't wait to do this again. What's the next thing I can do? What, what's the next thing? And they're hooked, right? Just like we're all hooked at the GSPM. We're all political junkies. We all want to know every, every poll, every fact about every race. Once people kind of get the bug, they stick with it. And I love seeing that feeling of empowerment in someone. And also in many cases in the medical community, you know, that I've worked in the patient realms, you know, a lot of these people feel very helpless, you know, and, and, and it's they're in really difficult situations. So this is a way that they can fight back when they might not be able to fight back against a disease or a condition that, you know, they don't have any control over. Yeah. As you've gone through these these different stops over the years, you've kind of you know risen up the the management ranks from associate director to manager to vice president. Um, what has that process taught you in terms of kind of the lessons of leadership and not necessarily just being a subject matter expert, which you clearly are, but also 
you know, being a person who can manage and motivate, you know, people and teams, because that can be a very different skill set that can be a bit tricky for some folks to pick up. It is. And I think one of the things I always get from folks is, you know, they say, Joe, you're, you're so outgoing, you know, you, it must be so easy for you to be a public speaker or to work with others. And I said, no, it's actually really hard. I just work at it all the time. Um, and I think that's the big thing is that if you're looking to move from being a subject manager, matter expert or a program manager, which is great, but you want to get into executive management, you need to look for opportunities where you can help build the culture of the organization you're working in. So, you know, if you're, you know, let's say you're currently the director of government affairs, but you want to become the chief advocacy officer at your organization, look for opportunities where maybe you can join the diversity, equity, and inclusion council for your association as you're coming up with new policies. Or maybe you can launch a new program. Um, you know, look for ways that can let you spread your wings and then you, the leadership can see that you want to do more. Because I can tell you, in none of my positions was I just one day someone walked up to me and said, oh, congratulations, you're now a vice president, right? Like I had to prove to them over and over that not only was I really proficient at my current job, but I was willing and able to do more. Um, and I, and then it's also doing the right things, right? So it's not just, I wasn't working 7, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And, and just doing everything, but I was doing the right thing. So going to your supervisor and saying, I would like more opportunities. What can I do to help you? What can I take off of your plate? And I can learn something in a new leadership skill. I think that's really valuable for two ways, because one, you're taking something off your supervisor's plate that they probably want to do something else and have better resources to do. But then B, you're showing them, I can do something different. Don't just pigeonhole me as the pack manager. Don't just pigeonhole me as a director of communications. I want to be a manager. Let me prove to you that I can do that. Today, you're the vice president of advocacy for Leading Age, uh, which we mentioned at the top. It's a role you've been in uh, for five years now. What have you loved uh, most about that job and, and what, what's really gotten you out of bed in the morning and, and made you excited to go to work and do that and, and do that work? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible organization working on behalf of older adults. And, you know, the thing is, is that before, you know, when I went to Leading Age, I knew that our aging services infrastructure needed assistance, right? I knew that we weren't doing the best for the seniors in our communities and that we needed to provide more money and more resources to meet that. And then three years in, the pandemic hit and mm. it just completely shone this light on this sector and shown all of the cracks and all of the holes. And, you know, for the past two years, just fighting feverishly on behalf of our members, literally trying to keep them alive. Because as, you know, as, as folks remember, hopefully at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, things like masks, gloves, gowns, things that used to cost like a penny or two a piece were up to, you know, a dollar a piece. I mean, our members were hemorrhaging cash. People were so afraid to go and work at a nursing home or an assisted mm -hmm. living facility. So they're hemorrhaging staff. And so, you know, we had to step in and get money from the federal government. We had to get ease of regulation so we could train people easier and keep them there. All the while, they're trying to keep literally keep people alive, our most vulnerable part of the population alive. And you know, we were able to secure billions of dollars in um, 
you know, COVID relief funds that went directly to our members to help cover costs. We were able to work with National Guards in the states so that way National Guard members could backfill staff so that way if, you know, there was an outbreak of COVID in the community, you know, National Guard members could come in and fill those roles. And that way you didn't have to shut down a, a nursing home because there was no staff that day. So, you know, those were the things that really keep me motivated, knowing that by protecting and helping our members who are the, you know, the providers of services, we were also protecting and saving lives. And I think that's what's always motivated me as I've worked in government affairs and, and on the medical profession side is, you know, we really are dealing with people's lives and health. And I think that's really, really important and valuable to me. As I mentioned, you've been uh, with Leading Age for for five years and, um, you know, everyone in this business while doing, you know, the important work they're, they're always doing is always also looking towards uh, what's next in the future and, and you know, what's the what's the five-year plan uh, is the question that you get a lot when you first come to DC. I know that I did. Um, what do you see as as the next step for you? Yeah, well, one of the things that's been just an incredible honor uh, being a professor at the GSPM as an adjunct and teaching state and local politics as well as interest group politics. And I teach my co-professor is Joshua Haberski, who's the um, deputy executive director of the Premium Cigar Association. And once again, it's another great example of um, how, you know, you can be friends with anybody in D.C. Josh is a Republican. He works kind of on the other side of, of, of the health. You know, I work for the Cancer Society. He works for a tobacco lobby. But he and I are best friends. And, and we teach our course. And we really try to show our students that, you know, you can have both sides. You know, and our students mm-hmm. really appreciate the fact that there's a Democrat and a Republican teaching the course. And as I've learned uh, through, I learned so much from the students just as much as they learned from me. And it's really lit this passion for me in teaching. So I'm really excited uh, to be moving more into teaching advocacy. And um, I'm going to be soon transitioning over to an organization called the Washington Campus as their vice president of programs, um, helping to lead their EMBA programs, where uh, MBA students from around the country are going to come to Washington, D.C. for intensive experiential business and advocacy courses. And I think Mm -hmm. this is going to be a great way to continue to show business leaders that whether they want to recognize it or not, Washington, D.C. has a major impact on their business and on their communities and that Mm -hmm. they ignore that at their peril. So I'm really looking forward to continuing to teaching and empowering people through education. Um, And I'm really looking forward to next semester, um, teaching again as well. And, uh, you know, as we pick up new classes um, and teaching with Josh and, you know, I've just been so grateful to have just a wonderful advocacy career. Like I said, the 16 year old me had absolutely no idea that I could have this career and that one day I would be, uh, you know, teaching at George Washington University as well as working in government affairs. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really amazing that this field is so open to anybody as long as you have a passion for it and you want to learn and you want to to do the work and you can really have an amazing career. Well, congratulations uh, on that new role and and you know particularly in on the the teaching and, and and sculpting kind of the next generation side of it. It's a good fit for for this next question, which we ask fairly frequently on this podcast. Um, Trust in institutions is is kind of at an all time low, and that's particularly true amongst young people. And it's not just it's certainly government and, and politics, 
but it extends to you know higher education. It extends to business uh, and, and other institutions within our society. What advice would you give to a young person on a why they should even bother to get involved in in something like politics or government advocacy, and b how can they find their own voice or their own path, their own lane through which they can contribute to and participate uh, in, in those institutions? Well, I love this question. And honestly, I think it's my favorite question you've asked me. And I think the, the number one thing is we have to be involved. You know, democracy is a participation sport. And the, the forces in power would like it if there was less people engaged because then it streamlines the process and those that have power don't have to cede any of that power at all, right? So we have to be involved because democracy doesn't work unless we have a full flow exchange of ideas. And we need young people to look at the way things are and say, we can do this better. I have an idea. How can we approach this differently? What if we tried this new policy proposal? What if we advocated for this? What if we changed this? That's what makes not only our democracy stronger, but it makes our society stronger because we have better programs and services for those that need it. Um, so we can't just sit back and rest on our laurels. And I think that everyone has a voice to do that. And, you know, find out what you're passionate for. Look for the organizations, you know, apply for those jobs, apply to be in a program like the GSPM where you can learn the new tools and then just start doing the work. Get in the trenches, get your elbows dirty and anybody can do it. Uh, you don't need to have the background. You don't need to have the money. You don't need to have the famous last name. You just need to have the passion uh, and you need to have the, the, the willingness to make a difference. Last question. There are a lot of opinions about what makes for a successful career. In your experience, what have you found to be the most important? Is it what you know or who you know, or it's some combination of both? Well, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you brought up it's who you know, because I think in D.C. and in government affairs, so much of what we do is relationship based. So I love the the network and the family that I've built. And whether it was through the GSPM and the students that I've met and, you know, one of my students, I was, you know, the, one of my classmates, I became the best man in his wedding. Right. So, you know, we, we, you make great friendships. I think that's important. But for me, I think it's also in a career for me personally, having a mission that I believe in, you know, I, I appreciate the salary and, and, you know, that's important too. We all have bills to pay. But I always wanted to make sure that I worked for an organization where I believed in the mission and that I was making a difference uh, that I saw fit. So I think, you know, really in a career, if you can have a job where you wake up and you go, I'm motivated, I'm excited to work on behalf of whatever, whether the mission or your members or your corporation, whatever it is, if you have that going for you, that is always going to be your light in a dark day when you're tired, when you're cranky, but you still know that at the end of the day, you're making a difference, you're going to be motivated and you're going to be fulfilled in your career. 
Joe Franco, wise words from a wise person. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I know you're super busy, uh, but I've certainly learned a lot from your journey, which, as you kind of noted to me before we got on the got on the line, is not the same as uh, the more conventional path to uh, the places uh, that you've worked and the places that you are now. Uh, but we're thankful you uh, you walked it, and we're thankful that you shared it with us and with our listeners. Uh, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.